This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. I just want to take a minute and remind you to check out conradchallenge.org and look at the kinds of things you can do to support students. The Conrad Challenge is really about facilitating 21st century skills of creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, communication. So go and check that out at conradchallenge.org. And if you missed my interview with Nancy Conrad, go check that out as well at transformativeprincipal.org slash Nancy Conrad. Welcome to Transformative Principle. This is episode 245. If you were with us last week, we interviewed Anthony Kim, the author, co-author of The New School Rules. And today I am excited to chat with his co-author, Alexis Gonzalez Blacks. Oh, sorry. Alexis Gonzalez Black, just singular. <laughs> and she <laughs> she is a principal designer at the global design firm IDEO. She designs and implements new organizational models to fuel innovation, agility, and engagement. And she founded Thoughtful Org Partners, which is a consultancy where she partners with organizations to break through rigidity and introduce self-organizing principles and practices. And it's like you're speaking my language there, Alexa. So welcome and thank you so much for being part of Transformative Principle. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So your experience and working in so many different places and so many different things. How did you get involved with Anthony in writing this book about schooling? Well, Anthony, um, I don't know if he told you this origin story, but Anthony and I met through a mutual friend um, and he contacted me to actually implement Holacracy at Education Elements. So at his company, um, they were, you know, struggling through meetings and through decision making as most organizations are. And they had uh, heard about self-organization and particularly this brand of self-organization called Holacracy um, and were interested in trying it out. And so I originally met Anthony as a consultant for his company, um, where we revamped the meeting process, revamped their operating system. And through that, uh, we sort of embarked on this journey and ended up writing this book. Great. So can you tell us what Holacracy is? Yeah. So Holacracy is uh, one kind of self-organization. It's uh, a practice where you sort of distribute authority 
into the hands of the people who are actually doing the work. So rather than that kind of traditional triangle or pyramid-shaped org chart that we all know and love, uh, what you're looking at is like a series of circles, which are like self-running startups or self-running businesses. And they really manage the work themselves, uh, making decisions and you know executing the work and driving uh, the sort of vision and strategy for that work. Each part of the company or each circle uh, manages that on their own. So that sounds a lot like another term that I've heard and um, listeners of this podcast know that I love the book, The One Thing. And one of the things they talk about in that book and in the podcast of the same name is the idea that uh, successful leaders want to create empire builders underneath them, for lack of a better terminology, that instead of saying like, here, you have to do all this stuff and I'm going to manage and micromanage and make sure you're getting everything done. What they actually want to do is they want that person to take that idea and be able to run with it and make it their own thing rather than just doing whatever it is, whatever my vision for it could be, for example. Yeah. So is that kind of the same type of idea? Absolutely. I think what holacracy and self-organization sort of uh, requires of you as an individual is to put the organization's purpose above your own ego or your own sort of desire to want to be at the center of every decision or to be able to weigh in on every single thing. And as you're talking, I'm sensing it's sort of a similar, a similar situation where instead of sometimes, you know, being the central decision maker or the person who has to sign on the dotted line for everything, it's difficult, but it's also gratifying personally to us to be consulted on everything, to be included. It gives us a sense of purpose and value, right? And I think sometimes people don't admit that because it's hard and it's deeply personal. Um, But these systems of sort of where you're creating empire builders, to your point, or holacracy are when the purpose of the organization matters more than you. And you kind of have to subvert your own individual ego of like, I want to be the most important thing to the purpose that we're working towards is the most important thing. And we need everybody to have ownership over that and to be able to drive that and to be able to react and pivot, you know, with information as it comes in instead of waiting for me to consult on every single decision. Yeah. And and this is where like in education in particular, you would think because teachers are the ones doing the actual work with students that this would be a natural thing that's part of education already, but it's it's really not. And so many times uh, teachers are not involved in the decision-making process or the design process for their school. And I'm guilty of that myself. But also teachers sometimes have a resistance to being part of that thing. And principals have a resistance to being part of that at the district level and so on and so forth. And so how do you help people see the need to put the organization's purpose above their own ego? Yeah, this is, as you're kind of talking, I'm remembering uh, this experience that I had. I worked at Zappos, uh, which is the online retailer, and we implemented Holacracy there. 1,500 people, big, massive overhaul. Um, And I remember when I first started down that journey, I thought, how wonderful is it that we're going to give all these people power to drive decisions and to take ownership of their work. And I was sort of acting as sort of a chief therapist at that time where people would come to me with all the dysfunctions of their team and say, I've got this awful manager and I really just want to have control or power over this. And so I thought like this shift to holacracy or self-organization is really going to liberate uh, these people with all these complaints and challenges. and. 
I had this incredible experience where we implemented Holacracy. We flipped the switch. Uh, we, you know, give people power. It was this very Oprah moment where we were like, you have power and you have power. And it, everybody was so excited. And then the next day and the next week and over the next month, I kept showing up in team meetings and it was crickets. Nobody wanted to say anything. Even though they had the power, they were reluctant to step up and to actually leverage that power or to use that. And so I think you just kind of mentioned this, that people are sometimes hesitant to take on that role. Um, and it, it, you are so right. It is so deeply ingrained in our psyche and deeply ingrained in our own professional history. Don't step out of line, you know, with great you know, great power comes great responsibility. And that can really quickly freeze people up. So it is, it's a, it's definitely a challenge. And what it took for us was to take a step back and to realize that this is a muscle that needs to be built. It's not something that you automatically can unleash when given the power. It's like any good manager, right? And, and even when you're self-managing, you're deploying the same set of skills that you would as a manager. And that takes training, that takes time, that takes effort. And so we had to kind of go back to the drawing board and say, what are the self-advocacy skills? What are the communication skills? What are the, you know, the things that people need to learn in order to be able to leverage the power that we've given them? Yeah. And one of my, so part of my question about this is, do we need people to give us power or can we just take that opportunity ourselves without permission? Oh, such a good question and really central to the book because a lot of people who think about holacracy and these, you know, these huge overhauls of systems are like, that's awesome. But my superintendent or my principal would never allow us to do that. You know, like we just don't have the ability to flip that switch and say, everybody has power. Um, so the book is really centered around uh, what you're sort of asking, which is where do you have influence over these structures and how can you, just by the very nature of the role you're in and the scope of your role, how can you take power and really embody that and, and act in a different way that sort of demands that other people interact with you in a different way? Um, and so I, I think there's certainly like large systemic issues that need to be addressed, but none of that will ever be true unless each of us sort of individually begin to embrace this notion of advocating for ourselves, you know, managing ourselves in a really active way that that sort of sets the tone and demands that people interact with us um, in, a, in a totally new way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So last, uh, a little while ago, I, I published my, uh, on my podcast, my year in review, my own self-evaluation of my uh, time as a principal this year at my school. And it's something that I've done internally for myself, but this is the first time that I made it as public as I did, um, which was basically just like, going through all the things that I'm evaluating on, evaluate on, and then giving my own perspective on how well I think I did. And I didn't like give myself a rating or anything. I think that the rating itself doesn't really matter to me, but the, the idea of just that piece of taking ownership of your own evaluation, there should be nobody that knows how well you're doing in your job any better than you yourself actually know, whether you're a teacher or a principal or whatever. And yet we just wait as educators for our supervisor to come and say, you're doing this well or that well or, or whatever. And that, like, that is one place where the educators can really take the power and say, 
this is how well I'm doing and not wait for somebody else to say, this is where you're struggling or where you're good, but for them to be able to do that. And that's something that nobody, you don't have to be given power to do that. You can come into that meeting and say, here's all the ways that I'm doing really great. And here's all the evidence that I have to show that. But people don't really do that. Why is it when they have the opportunity for power or control over their own situation that they don't take it even then? Yeah, it is. Oh, that is so, so incredibly powerful. So your question, you know, why don't people take on that power? Because it's scary. And for some people, it even feels uncivilized to be so explicit and to be, you know, uh, so in charge of things. We've learned over the course of our professional lives to sort of wait for somebody to ask us to wait for permission. Uh, we've all been told to stay in our lane at one point or another. And these are the sort of things that echo in our brains when we have that sort of inkling, like maybe I could go a little bit further or go beyond this sort of call or take ownership over something. Um, we have this narrative of fear and so much so that people build these incredible stories around what might happen if they took ownership. And so part of undoing or unlearning this habit for us uh, was interviewing people and saying, what's holding you back? Why aren't you saying anything? And the elaborate stories people would come up with, like, if I say this, then, you know, my manager isn't going to agree with me. And then they're going to give me all the awful, you know, they're not going to give me a good planning period, or they're going to saddle me with all this extra work, or, you know, they're, they're going to do this. And then ultimately, I'm going to be miserable. And then they're going to fire me. I mean, just like the worst possible scenario people are building in their heads, um, that stops them from doing this work. And so one thing that we've learned is that the story that you tell yourself is so important about whether or not you're going to try something new or you're going to stay sort of paralyzed at where you are. And so I, I think that being able to say, what's the worst that can happen? Um, being able to tell yourself a different story is so important in sort of taking that control back. And Jethro, do you mind if I share one other story about like being open about your flaws or? Yeah, I'd love it. Okay. I'd love it. (laughs) We visited this place in uh, this business in New York City called Next Jump. um, And they sell sort of corporate programs, like corporate benefits and programs. Uh, So like the work that they do in and of itself isn't that interesting or exciting, but the way that they approach it at the organization is fascinating. So they have 21 leaders in the organization and those 21 leaders every year have the opportunity to be voted out of power by the rest of the organization. And so you have this sort of like shuffling of leadership every year. And part of that is what they encourage people to sort of face the truth about why they have been voted in or out of leadership. And so much so that they have people go through these kind of like self-actualization, you know, uh, sessions. And when you walk around posted on people's desks is the one thing that they are the worst at, or you see people sort of putting their flaws on display. And so we're taking a tour and post up next to somebody's desk is I'm very insecure about, you know, my, my intelligence. And so, uh, I may react harshly when called into question. I mean, things that you would only hear on somebody's like therapy couch were written and posted up next to people's desks, sort of displaying their triggers or what they're struggling with. Um, 
And that I thought is, I mean, that's an extreme case, but you can imagine when, when you're that clear and that transparent about what you're really great at and then what you're really struggling with, that's just an entirely different place to begin a conversation about improvement. Um, so, you know, it's so honest and so vulnerable. Um, and it was really just a remarkable thing to see. So, um, yeah, that was definitely an inspiring case for me. Yeah, that, that is so cool. And so like, it doesn't really matter what you use to identify that or to talk about it. It just helps to have a framework for talking about that because once you're clear about that. So for me, I, I like disc personality profiles, DISC mm-hmm. and, and those are, I've learned a lot about those. I've researched it and I understand those pretty well. And I most of the time can understand who someone is after I interact with them for a little bit, what their high points are and what their low points are. And that really helps a lot. However, what I do is I have posted on my door at my office a the one of the sheets from that personality profile that says how to communicate well with Jethro and how to mm. what things to avoid to communicate well with Jethro. And so it has things on there like if somebody comes in and tells me this big huge long story about something that really gets on my nerves and that's clear and I post that on my door so that when somebody comes in and they're like can I have a minute and then they go into like a five minute long story before they even get to the point, then that really drives me crazy, even though I sometimes do that myself, yeah. <laughs> but but that drives me crazy. And so them knowing that and being able to think about that before they come and talk to me really does help a lot. And then I ask my teachers and leadership team and people I work with to do that as well so that I can see the things that frustrate them and be able to say, oh, she doesn't like it when I you know, when I don't ask her how she's doing before we start talking and that's not one of my strengths. And so I need to be able to be reminded to do that so that I can work on building that relationship first and building that support first. And just having a framework for having that conversation is so powerful. And yet we're afraid of that when we really don't need to be because everybody has things that they're not good at. And that's just, yeah, that's just how it is. And and also, I think the other thing that's really important is we're never going to get it right. Like even even if you've taken the step to write down the things that that you like and the best ways to communicate and the wrong ways to communicate, like we're a flawed species and we need to give each other the ability to try things. And if it doesn't work out to not be afraid of that to sort of allow tension to happen. And this is also a big thing in the book. And I think another really important pillar of self-organization or self-management, which is that tension is inevitable. Like we are all going to be in situations where we didn't like the way that somebody talked to us or we're not comfortable with the change that's happening. And the one of the biggest tenets of self-management is instead of handing that tension off to somebody else to resolve, or holding on to it and just sweeping it under the rug until your you know rug is full of tension and you explode to own your tension and for you to be the one that's responsible for resolving that. So if I had a conversation with you Jethro and I didn't appreciate the way that you you know like said something to me rather than you know, telling somebody else or complaining at the water cooler or telling my significant other or the other teachers that are on my team, my job as a self-manager is to then say, Hey, Jethro, do you have a minute? Uh, can I talk to you about, you know, that conversation we just had? 
you know, here's what was challenging for me. It did bring up some tension for me. And I just wanted to let you know that. And I, you know, I, I have a lot of practice doing this. So it sounds very simple coming out of my mouth. Like, oh, you know, you just like throw it out there. But for most people, the idea of owning tension and confronting tension is absolutely arresting. Like I would never want to have that conversation, but it is, I, in addition to sort of that self-reflection piece that you're talking about, I think the second major pillar of, of being a self-manager is being able to surface and resolve tension in a productive and healthy way that isn't threatening. And, and just to realize that that's inevitably going to happen in your life. And it's your job to sort of confront that and continue to, to evolve, you know, the situation around you. Yeah. And gosh, I'm going to sound like I'm just tooting my own horn here, Alexis, <laughs> and I'm sorry, but this is another thing that you mentioned the story we tell ourselves is so important. I have a little uh, set of communication cards on my door at work also that allows people to use the communication card to start a difficult conversation with me. Mm. And the one that is the most important is the storyline card, because that means when somebody gives that to me, that means I have a storyline and this is the story that I'm telling myself in my mind. I need to know whether or not it's true. Like, is that really how you were feeling towards me? I felt that you were a jerk. Were you really trying to be a jerk or did it come off wrong? And 99% of the time, nobody's trying to be mean or rude or anything like that. We're just trying to like do the best with what we got. And sometimes we don't have the best. And so a teacher gives that to me. I immediately go into a different mode where I'm just listening, understanding, trying to help out. And then what they do is they get to say it and then I get to tell them the truth. And every once in a while, like once every like 20 or 50 times somebody gives me that card, they're actually accurate. And I can say, yeah, actually, I was really frustrated with you. And that's why I spoke the way that I did. And now how do we make that better? But the beauty is, is that most of the time people tell themselves these stories when they're not, that's not the issue at all. Mm -hmm. But this makes it easy for someone to have that confrontational conversation with me that they wouldn't really be excited to have. And, you know, it's just one of those things that like, as I said before, you've got to have a way to deal with these issues and bring them up. And if you don't, then you're going to bottle that tension up or you're going to sweep it under the rug or you're going to take it out on somebody that you shouldn't be taking it out on. Mm -hmm. And that's just not, it's not worth it. You know, I love, <laughs> I, awful. Love, I love the way that you make it sound easy. And I, and it, and it isn't right. Like the truth is like, no, even, it's not <laughs> even with the storyline card in front of you, the, the just like self, uh, I, I don't know what it, it's like. You really have to dedicate yourself to the practice of confronting tension or misunderstanding, or you have to dedicate yourself to it because even just thinking about it right now, I begin to sort of, my breaths become shallower and, you know, I begin to get a little bit warmer, like all over, like my yeah. physiological response to saying like, Hey, that thing that you said to me, like, here's the story that I'm telling myself about that. It is so hard. And so I think any Anything that you can do, a, st a stack of cards, a prompt, a uh, safe space, anything you can do to lower the energy that it requires to have those honest conversations in, in your school, in your organization, you're going to get pound for pound a huge payoff because it really like giving people permission to have that is it's so useful because it is such a, a difficult thing to do, but so valuable, yeah. you know? I, I totally agree. And it, it's something that we've got to be able to confront as leaders 
and also something that as subordinates, we need to be able to confront as well. And it's not enough for us to just make it okay for our people to do it with us. They've got to do it with each other and with our supervisor and, right. and everything in between and allow students to do that with us as well. Yes. So one of the things that I want to talk about as well that I think ties into what we've talked about in in a little bit different way is is in the book, The New School Rules, you guys talk about a idea of defining the role before you define the person. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those areas where sometimes we have people in roles that are not well suited for them or or something like that. And and it can be challenging to help someone see that. Yeah. And it's challenging to find the right person, especially if you don't really know what you're looking for. Can you talk a let's start a conversation about that process of of defining the role before we define the person. Yes, yes. So I, when we were writing the book, uh, we talked about how sometimes our job titles become, instead of like a useful tool for clarifying our value to an organization, they become a uniform that we can't take off. And it becomes part of who we are. And there's so much within our job titles uh, that we're doing that needs to be made explicit that we never do. We never do the work of really articulating what are the different roles that we're playing. And so we encourage people to sit down and kind of take stock. We call it role mapping um, on your team to sit down and ask, what are the different roles that I'm playing? What are the different pieces of work that I'm fulfilling for this organization and for our mission? And in that, being able to be explicit and also sort of untether yourself from your title or, you know, the whatever your tenure, whatever it is, untether yourself and really be able to uh, consider separately all the different pieces of work that you're doing. And it sounds like a simple thing, but it becomes so liberating because it allows you to consider here, like I, you know, I've got maybe one title, but I've got 12 different roles that I'm playing. Do I really want to be playing all of these roles? Am I really the best person to be fulfilling all of these things? Are there pieces that I can break off? Are there certain roles that I can break off that actually I should be, you know, delegating to somebody else? Or is there a piece of my leadership responsibilities that I can share? Um, so that it's not so tied in with just like you as a person or you as your title, but you're getting really, really clear about the work and where that work should be allocated. Because I think to your point, a lot of times we take on roles by default. You know, we're just, our job changes every day that we're in that building because there are new expectations and new needs and we just sort of step forward to fill them. But in, in retrospect and in reflection, we that might not actually be the best role for us to be filling. And maybe we can make a more deliberate decision and a more thoughtful and informed decision about whether or not we should keep all the roles that we're currently playing, if we should distribute them, if we should share them, if we should get rid of them. And you can only do that once you've got a really honest assessment of all of the different roles that you're playing in an organization. And with education in particular, like a teacher is a teacher is a teacher is what we think it is. And yet a kindergarten teacher does much different things than a high school physics teacher who does much different things than a middle school language arts teacher and and everything in between. And so how do we define that role more appropriately depending on those different areas where we could be in education? 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's up to the role mapping process. It starts with each person sitting down and doing a bit of self-reflection and beginning to capture what are the different buckets of work that I, you know, what are the different expectations? And this is, you know, sort of the central question is what do others expect of me? What do others need from me? And when you consider that question and you begin to sort of capture all of the different expectations on your role, you might begin to see some buckets uh, or some themes begin to emerge, right? Like you can group all of your instructional uh, responsibilities or curriculum responsibilities into one. You can maybe group uh, parental engagement into another bucket. And you'll notice that each of these buckets has its own sort of unique and distinct purpose of why you do those things. And so once you begin to sort of dump all those out and begin to sort them into the different buckets, that's when you can begin to get a clear sense of where is all of my energy going? What are the most important roles that I need to prioritize? And again, to the previous point, which are some of the roles that I can actually share or offload or, you know, distribute to somebody else um, and begin to make some of those more thoughtful decisions about the work that we do? Um, yeah, it is. It's it's a simple but powerful notion. Well, but just that last question of what are some of the roles that I can offload to someone else? I think truly in, in a day-to-day teacher's position, one of those things is uh, offloading grading and assessment mm-hmm. to her students and not taking that all on herself. Yes. And as far as a principal goes, I think that there are many things that they can offload. One thing we've already talked about is evaluation of teachers. That is an incredible responsibility to have that just on the principal's back. That is, I mean, you got people's livelihoods in your hands. You cannot take that lightly and you should not, I don't think, be the only arbiter of what that looks like. The teachers need to be involved in that process. And and our, uh, our evaluation systems don't always lend themselves to to being able to include them in that role. Yeah. Yeah. It's vitally important for them to do just that. And I think, Alexis, one of the things that's kind of scary about this idea is that if we start really examining a teacher's role or a principal's role, we're going to see that it is a oh, very, <laughs> very big job. And we're asking a lot of people and maybe we can't just hire teachers based on how many students they can cram into their classroom throughout the course of a day. Yeah. And we may need to think a little bit differently about that. And, and that is challenging. I mean, that is a huge continental shift that we would have to make in our paradigm for that to actually work. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I want, I want to say a quick note about like the, you gave this example of something that you want to offload, which is evaluation. And one thing that we've seen work at different organizations that have consulted with is what we call a role marketplace, which is there are inevitably roles that administrators or deans or leaders are performing that they actually maybe aren't the best person to own that exclusively. Um, and there is also a desire amongst other people in that organization to take on that role. And so there's this beautiful synergy around there are some things that you don't want to do or shouldn't be doing by yourself that you're currently doing just because you inherited it because it was written into your job description, because you think you need to do it. There are some of those things that not only can you 
define them. But once you put them out there, there is somebody else on your team that has been waiting for the opportunity to step into leadership in some way that is going to be so pleased with taking on, even if it's two hours extra a week, three hours extra a week, who is, who is biting, you know, the opportunity to be a part of that. And we don't even know that those things exist in, in our schools and in our organizations. There's these pressure release valves that are there that we don't even know until we get really clear about it. And, and it's such a beautiful thing to see that happen, you know, cause people want to take on leadership. They want, there's a desire. And, you know, the book begins to address this of like the workforce increasingly wants autonomy, mastery, and purpose. They want, they don't want to have to wait for these things. They want access to opportunity to leverage their skills in different ways to grow um, and to pursue mastery. And when you define your roles and, and, you know, delegate those roles or share those roles with other people, that's not only taking a weight off of you, but it is giving somebody a much desired opportunity to step into leadership. And I think that's, that's so important. It doesn't require a policy overhaul. It's one of those things at the beginning of this podcast, you asked me, what are some things that we actually have the power to do? It's one of those things that you have the power to do. Yeah. And, and that idea there of people wanting extra opportunities. I was just having a Twitter conversation a few weeks ago with somebody who uh, really wants to become an administrator. But you know, that whole paradox of you have no experience, so we're not going to hire you, but you can't get experience right. because nobody will hire you kind of thing. Yeah. That piece is totally a reality. And this is a great way to give those people opportunities. And again, when it comes to, you know, the holacracy ab- approach, you go find those things that need to be done and you start doing them, whether anybody asks you to do them or not. Right. And, you know, this, this podcast is a good example of that because, you know, I, I really liked a particular podcast called Practical Principles that was on quite a few years ago. And it was great for me as a, as a young assistant principal of learning how to be a better principal. And then they stopped doing it. And I looked around and realized there was nobody else doing a podcast focused on principles. And I was like, well, somebody should do something about that. And then I was like, well, why don't I start one? And I gave all these reasons why I couldn't. And then I was like, okay, I'm just going to, after like four months, I was like, I'm just going to do one and see what happens. And then since that time on December 1st, 2013, I haven't missed a single week in producing an episode for this podcast. <laughs> and, <laughs> and now I have um, consulting opportunities, speaking engagements, a mastermind that I run with other principals that is just amazing, cool. uh, yearly leadership summit in the summer. Like these things I didn't even know were possible. And now... It's it's happening because I said I want to do I want to be in charge and do something and that anyway I just think that's powerful so we did kind of avoid the question of what is that going to look like if we have to redesign how we allocate teachers time in school and it's yeah. not just how many kids you can cram in so let's talk about that for a minute yeah so is your question just sort of like the the operating systems end of it like how do our systems evolve to to this more flexible workforce that we're talking about is that sort of the boy that's certainly one route we could go down alexis and i'm happy <laughs> to go down that route too uh there's so many questions with that let's start there and see how do we evolve to the point where i can hire a teacher and not put her in a classroom all day long because that's not where her skill set is, but she can do something else that is truly amazing. 
And so like to set that up, you kind of see that with uh, instructional coaches who aren't in the classroom anymore. And now they are coaching teachers on how to be better teachers. But that's just one little aspect of so many more things that could happen. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many of the larger, like these, these questions that we're talking about are really questions of sort of personal choice um, in the way that you run a school or in the way that you sort of, you know, execute around your purpose and within your organization. And I think what it calls into question are, again, some of these larger structures of, you know, full-time headcount and how do we allocate people in a fractional sense? Um, So how do we understand, you know, if somebody has uh, 40 hours in a week, how do we pay somebody or understand somebody's pay grade or, you know, what band they're in if they spend 10% of their time um, in the classroom and then 20% of the time on the budget committee and then, you know, another 50% of the time someplace else. And I think it is really difficult, but there are organizations out there pioneering more flexible approaches to budgeting and to time allocation. Um, one way that we've seen that work is when people have sort of control over their own time allocation. And let's say you've got, you know, we call them people points. I've heard them called before. So you have a hundred people points to sort of allocate, uh, you know, in any given week of time. And you have to, at the beginning of, you know, the week, or maybe let's make the timeline longer, but the beginning of the semester, you have to allocate, where am I going to spend this amount of time and that amount of time? And that calculation gets sort of uploaded into the system and you are compensated and recognized uh, for that that time map that you've sort of submitted. Um, I don't think there are any like really great solutions to this. I don't think that we're going to find any great solutions until we begin experimenting and introduce a little bit more flexibility into our planning systems. Um, but it is, it is worth trying because the, you know, the excuse, the sort of age old excuse of like, well, we're not allowed to do that, or the district isn't going to allow us to do that. It is, it's holding us back from experimenting where we desperately need experimentation. And so we have to figure out some way to introduce new systems that are a little bit more flexible, uh, because that's what the nature of the problem and the challenge that we're facing, that's what it's going to require. It is going to require that we approach our work in a more flexible way. And it is incumbent upon us to figure out how do we evolve our systems to support that because we will just not be able to meet the needs uh, that are emerging in our economy and our schools and the demographics of our students. We will not be able to meet them using the same systems that we've used before. So I realize that's not like a perfect answer to that, but just know that it is a huge issue that a lot of organizations are taking on and beginning to experiment with more flexible planning and budgeting strategies. Yeah, well, it is it is definitely needed. And Alexis, I just uh, appreciate your time. I appreciate the conversation. This has been uh, fantastic for me. I can't believe it's already been almost 40 minutes. Yeah, I feel like we just barely started talking. So that's always a good sign for me. But the last question that I ask each guest is, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? Take one piece of what you're doing and offer it to somebody else. 
That's it. And what do you mean by that? <laughs> I mean, it's this, it's this conversation that we've been talking about this whole time. And, and I mean, there are a bunch of things in the book that I think are really valuable little nuggets and little shifts, but I don't know that any of them are as transformational as if you want to be a transformational leader, your job is, like you said, to, to create empire builders. And you can do that by simply taking stock of the work that you're doing today, taking one piece or one role of what you're doing, and then asking somebody who you know is chomping at the bit to try on bigger leadership responsibilities, ask them if they would be interested in stepping into that role. Just one Awesome. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. So uh, thank you so much again, Alexis. You can follow Alexis on Twitter at A Gonzalez Black. And you can follow the book at six, the number new school rules. Uh, that is also on Twitter. And um, thank you so much, Alexis, for being part of Transformative Principle today. Absolutely. Thank you, Jethro, for inviting me. Do you want to simplify your school's technology? save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE.